Welcome to Nerdologians, where our quest for virtue is thwarted by... Laziness, because we didn't think of an ending for this Yeah, joke. apparently not much, because, <laughs> uh, yeah, we didn't finish it, and that's our, that's our downfall. We are your curators, Bryson. And Zechariah. Tonight we will be discussing The Green Knight, directed, written, edited, and produced by David Lowry. Then they brought him his blazon that was of brilliant jewels, with the pentangle depicted in pure hue of gold. By the baldric he caught it, and about his neck cast it. Right well and worthily it went with the knight. And why the pentangle is proper to that prince so noble, I intend now to tell you, though it may tarry my story. It is a sign that Solomon once set on a time to betoken troth, as it is entitled to do, for it is a figure that in five points holdeth, and each line overlaps, and is linked with another, and every way it is endless. And the English, I hear, everywhere name it the endless knot, so it suits well this knight and his unsullied arms, forever faithful in five points, and five times under each, Gowan as good was acknowledged and as gold refined devoid of every vice with virtues adorned. So there the pentangle painted new, he on shield and coat did wear, as one of word most true, and knight of bearing most fair. First faultless was he found in his five senses, and next in the five fingers he failed at no time. And firmly on the five wounds all his faith was set, that Christ received on the cross, as the creed tells us. And wherever the brave man into battle was come, on this beyond all things was his earnest thought, that ever from the five joys all his valor he gained, that to heaven's courteous queen once came from her child. For which cause the knight had in comely wise, on the inner side of his shield her image depainted, that when he cast his eyes thither his courage never failed. The fifth five that was used as I find by this knight was free giving and friendliness first before all, and chastity and chivalry ever changeless and straight, and piety surpassed all points, these perfect five, were hasped upon him harder than on any man else. Now these five series in sooth were fastened on this night, and each was knit with another and had no ending, but were fixed at five points that failed not at all, coincided in no line or sundered either, not ending in any angle anywhere, as I discover, wherever the process was put in play or passed to an end, Therefore, on his shining shield was shaped now this knot, royally with red gules upon red gold set. This is the pure pentangle, as people of learning have taught. Now Gowan in brave array, his lance at last hath caught. He gave them all good day, forevermore as he thought. Off with his hand! Damn, dude, that was really good. I would have mangled that so much. Uh, <laughs> maybe <laughs> slightly on the way. Yeah, but, that's all right. You did yeah. great. So this is a kind of a lengthy quote that we're starting with, but this is going to be pretty important to understanding the themes of the movie as we go, I believe. Most definitely. I, I would, I hadn't actually even read through this before you started reading it. And it, yeah, it was just like all there. And yeah. Yeah. So um, first impressions, what did you think about just the movie itself, how it was filmed, the quality, production value, all that? All right. So i really enjoyed kind of the vibe and aesthetics of this movie it's kind of its own thing it has some elements at times of kind of like being a bit of a fever dream but it works 
You see Arthurian stuff done pretty often in like either cinema or books or... What is your name? It is Arthur, King of the Britain. Whatever. But this didn't feel like uh, just a rehash of that again. It felt like fresh. But it very also artistic, feel, yeah, very artistic representation of the material. It didn't feel like it was uh, spitting on the source material at all. Yeah, I thought uh, just watching the movie, I, I going into it, I thought it was going to be almost like an actiony, almost Braveheart-ish, maybe Lord <laughs> of the, maybe Lord of the Rings-ish. One ring to find them. Oh Jesus! And I mean, just the opening scene when the the witch is talking. And it like shows that image of him sitting on the throne and everything. Right at that moment, I knew like this is going to be a special movie. So yeah, you were like, okay, let's do Green Knight. Let's have a short episode. Um, yeah, we can discuss a couple things. Get this, uh, get this out. <laughs> and what did we get? We got another, another whopper that yeah. You know, hopefully, someone makes it past forty-five minutes. Great movie. Uh, the music. I remember the music being especially effective. There's many kind of strange sort of um, almost liminal scenes where an event is occurring and whatnot and this music just is like wah, 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 and you're you're like getting just as freaked out as you should be by the situation perfect just on point and i yep. thought the actors did a, a tremendous job in this movie mm -hmm. just by that you could really tell that they were in character by they're like the dialogue isn't anything epic but the emotion of the actors are portraying it just just sells it a hundred percent and it almost their lack of emotion because this is prominent throughout the movie all the characters are sort of like intentionally sort of cold and it adds to the the effect of this sort of dark imagining of camelot right because usually camelot has this I mean, I'm sure there's points in the mythology where it's become under darkness or something, but when I think of Camelot, it's always bright and cheery and the way things should be and everything's great, but you get a definite feeling of like, this is Camelot in a downturn. Yeah, this this is very much, and I think this is intentional. Uh, we can get to that later. This is, this is the fading of Camelot and what Camelot represents. Right, which makes sense because when you think of King Arthur, you think of the triumphant king and whatnot and this arthur is very much like at the end of his lifespan he's looking for his replacement and everyone seems kind of on edge about this transition they yeah. feel the transition coming there's and... there's an air of nobility but like both arthur and guinevere kind of look old and they're a little bit sickly yeah and it's like okay is is the uh camelot project going down yeah Right. Now, you told me something about how this particular story of the Green Knight is sort of like an Arthurian fan fiction or maybe well, like extended universe. So the the whole Arthurian mythos is this extended fan fiction universe. Oh, OK. Kind of retell the stories like Le Morte to Arthur is its own retelling of the Arthur legends and doing it in its own way. And this often happened. And so is so is the original Green Knight poem. The original Green Knight poem is using the Arthurian tale to kind of establish its own themes and kind of ask its own questions about the idea of chivalry and like how do our ideas of like ideas like courtly love uh, intersect with 
ideas like Christian virtue. I guess we know, we've already established that it isn't a, you know, piece for piece, part for part representation of the poem. What do you think would be the main differences between this movie and the poem? It's kind of almost sets itself in opposition to the poem at points. I don't think it's opposing the poem's main themes, but it is, it with the way it carries on and ends, it seems to set itself up as kind of a dark reflection of the poem in some sense. Right. Because uh, spoil, this is going to be a slight spoiler, but not really big since the movie starts with this uh uh-huh. is gowan is not uh the perfect knight he's the opposite of a perfect knight that is one big pile of shit in the quote we just read gowan is like this paragon of all these knightly virtues uh but in movie uh gowan is wakes up in a brothel and he's like missed the the mass of christmas mm-hmm. and he's been carousing and he's like got a hangover Right, uh, which is <laughs> the opposite of uh, what we saw in the po- poem, where it's like he's chastity, chivalry, friendship, friendliness, free giving. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially the chastity part—that's <laughs> in the piety. That's like right. We're immediately introduced to the fact that this Gowan ain't got those things. Right. So the story is setting you up to where this can either go one of two ways. This can be some sort of like redemption tale where. Gawain is like a bad dude and then progressively attains these virtues or he really is not virtuous and he is not knight material and that's kind of when I was watching I was like is this going to go this way is this going to go this way and spoilers spoilers it definitely goes in the latter direction Gawain is essentially just not a good dude and through the movie Part of the progression of the movie is that he will go through these virtue tests, which we're going to get more into depth later. But I mean, Gawain just, he fails them like every time. I mean, there's one time we think he might have passed, but it's very representative of his character because most of his tests, when you see the tests given, you would think that like he would do this specific action, right? One of his first tests is there's a boy that comes up to him and once gives him a piece of information and he requests some sort of compensation but the fact that he had to request the compensation and then the guy just flips him the coin going flips him the coin just right then you know like man this guy isn't doing so good is this is this the character that becomes the virtuous knight is this the free giving going so yeah we we definitely see that inconceivable 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 Inconceivable! You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Some of the symbolism I think we see early on is first we see with Arthur and Guinevere, they have kind of these halo crown looking things, which is very evocative of kind of medieval or even earlier uh, icon, iconic, iconography. Iconography. It's a tough Where one. you have the saints <laughs> and they have those little halos, of course. So. Mm-hmm. It's very evocative of like this idea of Christendom. And I I kind of don't want to put this this way, but I want to approach whatever the artist is trying to say here, kind of Western culture as well, I think, because that's very much tied with kind of this idea of Christendom and uh, knightly values in a lot of minds. 
right and you and, can almost pull into something like the part of the like the monarchy where like divine right of kings and stuff like you mm -hmm. definitely tell with the halos that this is in full force and they are really sort of divinely inspired beings or something yeah which is super cool that this is in the movie itself and then on the other side we see uh gowan's mother who we learn is uh morgan lefay which, which is a bit of a departure from the book because gowan's mother is Morgaus, who's uh actually a sister of morgan lefay and it's much more complicated so i can see why they simplified this but we see her uh paralleled against arthur there's like a literal scene by scene parallel where you see arthur and then it switches to Morgan Le Fay's point of view, and they're doing kind of either similar or slightly reversed things. And she's doing all these kind of witchy stuff with uh, these very pagan overtones. So you can definitely see this setup, this uh, parallel or antagonism going on. And I right. think one of the things I was like wondering is, are they gonna do this? Because I've seen this done so often, which is just like, okay, we're going to, deconstruct Arthur's colonial, imperialist, uh, Western, uh, Christian-centric Christian framework, and actually the witches and the pagans are the good ones. So that was almost the obvious place the movie could go. And if it did go there, I think, I think we would have a much different experience because I think that's been overdone, honestly. I think the that that actually adds to the mystique of the movie and the oddness yeah. that the the environment gives you because you're right like Morgan Le Fay and, and her little posse of witches they are using very like subversive almost like espionage tactics which leads us to a different another question later on how Morgan Le Fay is almost subversing subverting herself because of her belief in the quest because one reading of this movie is that Morgan Le Fay actually wants Gawain to succeed in his test, but she's using her own sort of like subversive countermeasures to sort of thwart the logic of the quest because she gives him this sash. And the sash essentially is a, is like a get out of jail free card for any time he's about to die, the sash will supposedly prevent him from dying. Yeah, and the big thing of this quest is him going to get his head chopped off. Right. Right. So, right. so she, she, her, she represents sort of a subversive of the quest, but still wants Gawain to succeed. Whereas the, you know, the Christian ethics in this film, the knightly ethics, are what determines the success of his quest. And the success of his quest is that he has to keep this bond with the Green Knight. Mm -hmm. And I guess Morgan the Face trying to get him to win the quest without actually having to die. Yeah. I think, or. There's the reading where, you know, is she trying to just thwart the quest entirely? Mm. Because we'll see later how some of his temptations, I believe, are actually orchestrated by Morgan Le Fay. Okay, how about some of the symbolic colors? We noticed some of these. We watched this with a, a few friends of ours, and one of him pointed out about how there's a character in this in this movie called I don't know what its name is, but it's a fox that follows him around. But it yeah. has, you know, it's human in a way because it can communicate. It's probably smarter than your average fox. The color scheme that the director uses is it's similar if, if, as if not the same color as Gawain's mantle cloak that he wears. 
and I interpreted this at least that the fox sort of represented Gawain's it's almost like a psychoanalytic thing. I think this, this, the fox is a more accurate representation of inner, Gawain's sort of inner motions and movements, whereas the Gawain we see on film is more him attempting to be a virtuous knight. It's not that your public mask masks the real person behind. What you construct as a real person behind. Because the fox is sort of in the quest with him, but he always is kind of representing, to me at least, a way out of the quest. There's a scene in the end where they're trying to cross this, I don't know, I think it's a river, but they're trying to go on to the next scene where he's gonna finally see the Green Knight, and the fox kind of is like, you know, you can just run away. You don't have to actually do this, which is similar to what his girlfriend told him in the beginning. You know, you. why do you have to go on this quest? Why is greatness so magnificent and all that? I think those characters are in the story to sort of give a give a representation to Gawain's desire to sort of flee the quest. Yeah. So and yeah, the man, the mantle he's wearing is like a similar color to the fox. And I believe the mantle's color is actually from the original poem. Oh, really? So they're putting that in. Of course, the other big color that is like super obvious, uh, but it might not be obvious to some is green. Green is a very yeah symbolic color and they draw your attention to this fact and this is what's interesting about this green color is that there's there's a scene where i guess we're already in the spoiler section that... Spoilers. but there's a scene where gawain comes upon this palace and you know some hijinks occur and he ends up sitting in front of this fire with the lord and the lady and the lady goes on this weird diatribe about how green represents like decay basically it represents some form of the old way being overcome by the forces of nature you know sort of as if the civilization is sort of anti-nature or something but the green man also represents sort of Gawain's final final moments where he does actually do the virtuous thing right mm -hmm. right where the green man sort of leads him into an actual virtue that parallels this weird quest between Morgan Le Fay and Arthur, right? Or Gawain or whatever, whoever's orchestrating the events. Because she's sort of like hopes that nature will come over and take over the civilization. It's actually the natural green man, whatever, that is what leads Gawain to his actual virtual act. Yeah, and also uh, the belt is also green, which I think is important. So there's kind of like two versions of green going on here. There's the Morgan Le Fay and her sisters or witches or whatever. They they feel they kind of embody green in some sense, yeah. uh, where they seem to be like, hey, let's uh, the civilization that's built is going to eventually crumble and be overcome by moss and woods and mold. Right all these things but then the green knight he seems to still kind of be his own agent even though he's basically summoned by them which is one thing i still need to think about yeah because at first he seems like entirely their agent because like they wrote the letter which is what he's kind of quoting in arthur's court but in another his he seems satisfied that gowan has basically subverted whatever morgan's purpose is who are you the CIA? NSA? This is sort of where 
we come back to this thing where it's like, is Morgan Le Fay's machinations attempting to subvert the quest or is like she like is she involved in the quest in some sort of higher purpose or something yeah Gawain has a relationship with a prostitute and she is played by a particular actress and what you see unfold in his first sort of I don't know it's not necessarily his first dialogue with her but their relationship and their dynamic is that she seems like an all right gal and once Gawain has committed to this quest, he try she tries to kind of like spark an actual real relationship with him, and then he like denies her that. This is a character that's sort of like both bad and good at the same time. And then later in the quest, when Gawain goes to this chapel, and not it's not a chapel, it's like a palace, a lord and lady rule over it. The lady that is actually being used to tempt Gawain into unchastity is played by the same woman that played the prostitute. And this, again, is one of these scenes where this is probably the doing of Morgan Le Fay somehow. Hinted at, I think, by the old woman in the palace that has her eyes covered like all the witches did, right? There's yeah, some kind the, of connection, obviously. In the poem, yeah, the, uh, the, the woman in the palace is Morgan Le Fay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I guess it is her in yeah. some, in the, in some in, way. I don't think they did. They didn't really draw attention to this in the in the uh, in the movie, and I, I'm not sure they really went anywhere with this. But the Lord is supposed to be the Green Knight in disguise. Interesting. Okay. Well, maybe I should have read the poem first. <laughs> anyways, Morgan Le Fay always sort of is like walking on the border of what she kind of represents nature in a way right it's like in sort of an aquinian view where nature is sort of like this neutral ground but may be inherently good deep down but doesn't necessarily have to follow the divine path quote unquote mm -hmm. i do think that this sort of representation of morgan lefay sort of having a some sort of hand in gawain's um temptations it's like you know it's like almost like an old testament idea of satan right satan isn't necessarily working against god he's his tempter yeah one thing i wanted to bring out i th think i'm drawn to a more skeptical view of uh morgan levey i mean not exactly skeptical but i don't see many good motives from her because of the vision that uh, Gowan has regarding the future if he uh, fails the test, right. which basically shows Morgan leading him to do some precise things, and it <laughs> ends very badly for the kingdom. Yeah. So, right. I mean, there's a reading of this movie where uh, Morgan is wanting. Uh, Gowan to succeed and these are just ways to kind of bring him up but it's still kind of even in the end I, I there's two readings of the end of the movie this is why this movie is kind of interesting and almost hard to do because you don't really know the ending but I'm assuming that Gawain takes the axe and he dies and that's what should have happened the whole time the other I think the other reading of this movie is that Gowan survives the uh, mm -hmm. the axe because in the poem he just gets nicked and the green knight's like huh this is this is kind of your uh this was a game and this was me uh 
me kind of pushing you along here mm -hmm. and I nicked yeah. you because you did the you kept the belt on right and that's that is the big difference between the movie Gowan and the book Gowan the book Gowan is a paragon who kind of falls for this one temptation which is the belt because he's afraid of death and then the green knight is like ah oh, it's it's okay but that was like a really stupid and not really virtuous thing to do and Gowan's yeah. like okay I'm gonna remember my shame and become a better knight because of this right whereas movie Gowan is a piece of shit and <laughs> but ultimately he uh makes the choice to take off the belt and take his licks as it were yeah and we're basically left with this ambiguous ending where either the green knight is gonna let him go or he's getting his head chopped off and i think lowry's come up uh and said i originally filmed the beheading scene but i wanted to leave some room for ambiguity here right and it kind of it's kind of cool because basically i think however you feel about gawain subconsciously is what's going to color your interpretation of the ending of the movie so if you if you sympathized with him in some capacity i think you know you want to believe that he lived but i did not sympathize with gawain even after his moment of like realization and i guess i kind of hoped he got his head chopped off because i think it's the only way he can really redeem himself you know i don't know i think i did sympathize with gawain but i think i'm kind of deeper into this uh idea of honor and so i feel that i feel him dying is still kind of the right ending right like my takeaway is that doing the right thing doesn't always get you rewards glory uh a nice life sometimes doing the right thing ends with you dead and Agreed. i i think if we if he got up and walked away within the movie even if we can ambiguously say maybe he did, that would kind of spoil that aspect for me. There's one kind of cool thing I thought of when I was watching this, is this sort of idea of the Chapel Perilous. It's sort yeah. of known in uh, you know Arthurian myth. I forget what the actual scene is in the Arthurian mythos, but I thought of this because it wouldn't surprise me at this point in the movie that Lowry would like be incorporating and kind of, you know, altering the story and changing it a little bit. But in psychology, there's this thing called the Chapel Perilous. And essentially, the Chapel Perilous, you become sort of locked into some sort of behavior or action or quest, for example. You get into this dynamic where you don't know what's real and what's not and what's your own imagination and what's not. And I think. Lowry must have sort of incorporated this into the filming of this story because every every time Gawain comes to one of these sort of virtue tests, there's like this, I don't even know what you'd call it. You're almost in like a dreamlike state or dreamlike existence. There's always this bizarreness to it. And this is enhanced by the music and by how they film it. And and like there's a scene when they're in the forest and Gawain is tied up by these uh, burglars or whatever and he's sitting there lying there and he the camera pans around and it shows the forest and then it comes back around to Gawain and he's dead and then it comes it goes back around comes back around and, 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 and Gawain
Wayne is now alive and decides to like, okay, I'm going to get myself free and go after this sort of adventure. So this reminds me of this chapelless perilous chapel perilous chapel perilous concept because when Gawain is taking the virtue test, there's like some sort of supernatural higher meaning event going on and I just thought that was a super cool way to film this. And it, yeah, it, I mean, incorporating they're... something that originates in Arthurian myth gets kind of reused in psychology. And then sort of he's using the psychology meaning in the story as opposed to maybe the strictly literary version of the tale. And there are hints that like some of this might be within his mind because we actually see a scene where he like imbibes psychedelic mushrooms. So there you go. There's like. So he's a, definitely hinting at you. Hey, maybe everything isn't exactly how it seems. Right. It's almost like when he does these tests. You know, you got the first test with with the kid. That one's kind of questionable. But then he he has like a, a thing with a ghost, an interaction with a ghost. He goes, completes the quest for the ghost, and then like the ghost is gone, and all this weird psychedelic looking film happens, and then he moves on to the next quest. And I think the next one is when he takes the mushrooms, right? Hmm. I think. Might have to check that out. But yeah, so then he goes in the cave, eats the mushrooms, he gets has some weird like spiritual encounter with the green knight off in the distance. And then I think when he leaves that cave, right, he's like running. So he's sort of scared. So I almost think this encounter with the Green Knight is almost like a fear bravery thing because the next scene, it's, it's like freaks him out and he's like running. But maybe he passed because it furthered him on his quest or whatever. But anyways, Chapel Perilous, cool concept. I guess this would be some kind of film technique, storytelling technique. It reminded me of this scene in The Last Temptation of Christ, which some of you guys might have seen where at the end of the movie essentially the controversial part is that jesus is offered a way out from fulfilling his mission on the cross and it gives him this like really glorious but eventually bad vision where he like gets off the cross has kids you know becomes a carpenter or whatever he's a successful guy and his life would be all great and this is really similar to what happens to Gawain is that Gawain leaves he comes back it's glorious because Arthur crowns him king and whatnot and then like he has a, a time where this is a wonderful thing and then as time moves on and goes forward you know the bad is darker and darker right and then that's when in this movie and in the last temptation of christ gawain's like okay i had i was sent here to die that's what i have to do we think that's what happened i think back to kind of symbols okay. uh, one thing i noticed and it's in the it's in the poem as well as when the green knight arrives he has like a bow of holly held up in his hand okay yeah and now i believe there's something uh with holly and druids but it might be mistletoe in like one of the Roman histories about them. Yeah. I need to like get back to that. <laughs> right. Because I sucked on research for this. Yeah, but we did not it, prove virtuous in recording this podcast. It does have uh, very Christian symbolism in this time period. Like, have you ever heard the uh, song, The Holly She Bears a Berry? I have not. Can't you just trust that I'm a really, really, really good singer? So it's like the holly, she bears a berry as white as the milk. And Mary, she bore Jesus all wrapped up in silk. And Mary, she bore Jesus.
And the first tree that's in the tree. Your voice is like a combination of Fergie and Jesus. But You're saying it's ringing zero bells. <laughs> but and it goes, it goes on to like, uh, bears, uh, a very green as the grass. Uh, our Mary, she bores Jesus who died on the cross. And then as blooded as red, uh, Mary, she bore Jesus who rose from the dead. But this kind of gets into the, this idea in uh, kind of medieval folklore that the holly kind of represents Christ and uh, his, the three things that kind of happened to him. Right. Interesting. And it, that it becomes kind of associated with Christmas a little bit. Right. And but, which we forgot to tell you, this is a Christmas movie. Believe yeah. It because it, it, start, <laughs> it starts with like the Christ mass and yeah. then the green man arrives in this Christmas uh, celebration to do his little test. And then he has to go and meet the green man again next year on Christmas. Along with along with Die Hard. Ghost, we get together, have a few laughs. I know what a TV dinner feels like. This is a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Add that to your list of uh, family fun during yeah. the holidays. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting uh, is this green man motif that is obviously oh, yeah. you know the Green Knight and all that, and it it does go with which I guess we'll go into a little bit. The Green Knight is the Green Knight is sort of this medieval um i guess you'd call it a pagan deity but like if you look at a bunch of temples and churches and stuff in the medieval era you will see like this green man motif built into the architecture which i think basically represents the more medieval view that you know like nature is it's a representation of nature but nature is sort of quasi-divine and you know the logos flows through it and you know all this kind of motif but what's kind of interesting in this movie is that it's this is almost inverted because the i mean in the long run maybe not but the green man is a very dominant posing threat in this movie he's always you know the the green man represents the end and the most difficult trial of Gawain's quest which is sort of interesting because you almost kind of see this double meaning again right so Gawain is terrified you have this antagonistic character the green knight they will eventually, well, keep him accountable for the stupid action he does in the beginning of the movie. And when Gawain meets the Green Knight, you can almost see, like, Gawain finally sees what a real knight is like, right? He's unchangeable, he's sturdy, he's going to follow through with what he did, he kept his end of the bargain. So it's sort of the same dynamic that you have with the color green in the rest of the movie, where green sort of represents the end, but also seems to be a just end, if that makes any sense. So yeah. I thought it was interesting that the green man was sort of slightly altered into this sort of antagonist slash teacher slash mentor role. So that, there's also this other idea called the Holly King and the Oak King, okay. which has like these two figures set as like personifications of the seasons, where the Holly King is like the personification of winter and the Oak King is the one of summer and they kind of do battle for the seasonal cycles. But I'm not sure how much of this is scholarship versus pseudo scholarship, uh -huh. because some of this is like, from, uh, may occur in like Robert Graves, the white goddess, and his, his scholarship is kind of sus. Yeah. Uh, and it's compared a bit to Fraser's stuff uh, from the Golden Bough. Well, okay, his right. stuff was cool at the time, 
uh, over time of like, okay, yeah, this he's reaching way too far with a lot of stuff. And so Golden Bow stuff has kind of fallen out of favor, even though he has a few cool things in there. It so, kind of makes sense. I mean, it, it kind of fits, though. I mean, yeah, he does sort of, the Green Knight does sort of represent a sort of a yeah. reclaiming or re-subverting, resubmission of the civilization to the forces of nature or something, right? So I, think, I might... Yeah, I think it kind of fits. My point here isn't whether this is historical or not, but whether the author of the movie is drawing on this motif and trying to pull on it. Because we see this little weird scene with like the puppets and we see like the changing of the seasons happening behind right. them. Uh, so there is maybe a little idea of this seasonal thing going on. Yeah, I think I think you're on to something. I think you're right. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing that was brought up. There's a scene where Gawain has moved, he's freed himself from the burglars and now he's continuing his journey and eventually he comes to sort of like this haunted, spooky cottage by a lake and he goes into the cottage and then he has this encounter with the spirit and the spirit is asking Gawain to retrieve her head from this lake now apparently this is this is a thing in uh i guess mythology british, in general. british mythology british Maybe. celtic norse really like one of the big examples is like the Mirmir's head in Norse mythology where Mirmir's head gets cut off and it forms like this spring which becomes this well of wisdom and then Odin has to uh, I think drop, cut, uh, pull out his eye and drop it in the well to gain wisdom but it's Mirmir's head yeah. and there's, there's other parallel stuff about heads forming springs so that's pretty interesting in the saint story but I think what's interesting in this story is this whole thing with uh, Saint Winifred isn't in the Green Knight poem, but I kind of see what the what the writers did here, because I believe it mentions that Gawain uh, went by Holyhead in the poem, and so there are a couple interpretations. There is like a place called Holyhead, but there's also a place called Holy Well uh, on the Welsh coast, and this is set in Wales. This is a, a Welsh poem. And this place called Holy Well is where this woman called St. Winifred wanted to become a nun, but a man who uh, wanted to be her lover or something didn't like that. So he cuts off her head and her head forms this uh, well or spring that has miraculous properties. And then in the story, there's this other uh, saint who's like related to her who finally retrieves the head and uh, reunites it with her body. But in this, he's drawing from this holy head thing to pull out the story of it's actually Gowan who is going to have to retrieve the head from the spring. All right. A, a big part of this story, the, probably the most obvious and on the surface, is uh, these five knightly virtues that are alluded to in the poem that you read. And there's a scene in the movie where while they're getting Gawain's gear ready, uh, Guinevere is uh, reciting some sort of poem about the five wounds of Christ and the five... Five joys of Mary and then the five virgins. Yeah. So and this is a big... Fingers. Yeah. And yeah, that's what we just saw in the, the poem segment we read because it told us all of that stuff. 
So the five uh, knightly virtues are generosity, courtesy slash chivalry, chastity, friendship, and piety. So as the movie progresses, Gawain has these encounters that are going to test these virtues that he um, needs to show his knighthood and if he's a real knight and if he can, you know, have legends spoken about him, as he said earlier in the movie. So generosity, um, we thought that this was most most expressed in the scene where Gawain has entered into this battlefield and there is a, I don't know, I don't know 12, 13, 14 year old boy. And he is like searching the bodies for, you know, loot or whatever. By the way, the boy specifically mentions that King Arthur killed like a certain number of men. And I looked that up and it's a reference to how many Arthur was said to kill at the Battle of Baden Field. Bring out your dead! Bring out your dead! Interesting. So, so this, all these corpses are apparently like the results of one of Arthur's uh, battles, which kind of casts like a darker subversive light on the Right. Uh, yeah. Right, yeah, which is an interesting part of the, you know, which is an interesting deviation from the poem, right? Because this isn't in the poem, right? Yeah. At least, at least not, yeah. So in the poem, we have, of course, the five virtues, and there's like other ways like the poem is structured that kind of relate back to five. So mm-hmm. the movie is drawing on this whole five motif. And in the, in our thing with the quote, it talks about the pentangle which today would be more commonly known as the pentagram, which is now more closely associated with like the idea of paganism or, or witchcraft. But in the poem and in medieval England, Britain, Celtic stuff was actually a, a Christian symbol that was okay. used like for the five wounds of Christ, right? Yeah. Uh, so he asks him for this. Basically what happens is that Gawain gets to a point and he, he asks this boy where the uh, the green chapel is or is, has he seen any chapels nearby and the, and the kid uh, basically tells him that if he follows the the river uh, northwest I believe he says that he will eventually come on a chapel he doesn't know if it's the green chapel etc etc well this the scene highlights the fact that Gawain sees this poor kid looting bodies for money and, and food maybe and he just goes after the boy tells him this information he just says thanks and it moves on and the boy gets frustrated with him and says nothing you're not going to give me anything for that information and then Gawain kind of has this expression like I can't believe this guy just asked me that and then he flicks him a coin and the boy's reaction leads to believe that the coin is just like yeah like five bucks or something and this is this first as far as i can tell virtue test and going fails it miserably the next one is courtesy courtesy and chivalry okay this is when he has this encounter with the ghost uh saint what is it uh, saint winifred saint winifred we think at least symbolically and one of the strange well, no it literally the literal uh heading she does say it saint. okay it it says his uh Gawain and Saint Winifred like shows up in big title yeah. letters on the screen. So <laughs> No, that is Saint Winifred. Okay, yeah. All right, definitely Saint Winifred. And 
when he sees the ghost initially, he's like freaked out and he's like, oh, don't, you know, can't, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to stay here. And then she confronts him and asks him to sort of, I think she's starting to lead into the fact that she wants him to do something for her. And for some bizarre reason, I think Gawain takes this as she's coming on to him and he's like, tries to like touch her. Hello, 911 emergency. There's a handsome guy in my house. Oh, wait a second, cancel that. It's only me. And then she rebukes him and says, you know, don't touch me, a knight would know better. However, he does pursue her quest, retrieves the skull from the bottom. Well, of right the before he's about to retrieve it, he says something like, uh, what am hey, I gonna get but what this? are you going to give me? And she says, like, why would you ask that? Yeah. <laughs> don't yes. ever ask that. This is a big fail for Gawain. He achieves the quest, but he does it in this way where it, it it's kind of spoiled. Right. He he's motivated not by the act in itself, the virtuous act in itself. He's motivated by, well, how is this gonna benefit me or how is this gonna help me achieve my quest? All right, next is chastity. This is sort of set up in the beginning of the movie where you see that Gawain is in a brothel and he's out messing around with prostitutes and all this kind of thing. This is sort of your your the priming of the problem. And then later in the story, when he goes into this uh, this palace, he is tempted by the lady of the house and he gives in. And it's funny because I mean, like she basically just tells him he failed right after he you he's know, like, yeah, you're no knight. Done. This is, it says again in reference to the poem here. I think we'll get to something else here. So in the poem, he goes to the place and then the whole thing is about the kind of the back and forth between uh, Gowan's kind of Christian ethics versus this idea of courtly love where marriage is what brings us together. Knights have this kind of ambiguous relationship with like married noble women. So he's kind of trying to balance that out. And so the Lord in the poem proposes this game, whatever you get in the uh, in the castle, uh, you give to me and whatever I bring back from the hunt, I'll give to you, which is like a game between them. And in the poem, whenever he gets back, because he's kind of like in the way everything's set up, he has to like give the lady a kiss. So he kisses the uh, Lord when he gets back to like give him back what uh, he got but he fails to give him the belt, which is his one failing in the poem. Right. In the poem as well, the lady is very obviously trying to seduce him. In the end, it kind of comes off with this theme like, well, even even greater men have like fallen for the wiles of women. Uh, and I think that is part of why we have this whole reference to Solomon in the poem, where the pentacle is tied to this idea of Solomon. And the pentacle is very much in evidence in the movie much more than even in the poem because yeah. in the movie it's just a symbol for uh, Gowan but in the movie it's kind of symbol for the Arthurian knights we see the king like wearing it on a medallion I think some of the knights are too and like in the middle of the round table thing on the floor we actually see the pentacle inlaid on the floor there it so, is so chastity test fail <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Friendship test. 
this is most highlighted in this encounter, final encounter with his fox friend. And essentially what happens is Gawain is getting ready to enter or get close to the Green Chapel and the fox sort of tries to talk him out of it. And it's very reminiscent of what his prostitute girlfriend said in the beginning of the movie, right? He, it, it is sort of a temptation, but essentially the temptation is that you don't really have to do this. You can always just walk away from this quest and then like go live your life and it'll be fine. You just won't achieve this greatness. So is greatness so great if it's going to put, you know, the enjoyment of your life at stake? And Gawain kind of responds to this, like, well, as per usual, just like a shithead. And he chases the fox off. He's like, I never it, asked for your companionship. And he just like throws rocks at it or something. Yeah. And the fox has been the most faithful companion this guy has had through this entire series. My friends are my power. And, you know, he's not like asking anything from Gawain. He is just there to help him on his quest. And Gawain, instead of saying, no, I have to do this, I have to go, he just chases his friend off for his suggestion. And now Gawain is just on the quest alone. So friendship test, fail. All right, and the final test is piety. So I think when we think piety, we obviously think of like religious piety, right? And that is very much in present in the thing but i think the movie is presenting a broader view of piety here where uh, piety also involves like duty and things like that and uh gowan has a duty to the green knight uh which is to fulfill his oath and the the uh game they undertook and so uh, initially it seems like he's fails because he flinches and then he runs away from the cave yeah and it, it's kind of interesting because like i almost wonder if we watched this another time we would get this connection but it's interesting because like in the beginning of the movie you get like this sort of character description through the film of how gawain has these downfalls and how he really never progresses through them which is like the entire idea of sort of virtue ethics so in the beginning he fails to attend mass and then this is the predictor or the groundwork laid for his, his struggle for achieving piety which i guess is, is his final test and would you say he passes the piety test well initially it seems like he doesn't because he seemingly runs away but then he apparently receives this vision of how his life is going to turn out where he goes, he uh, becomes king, but then it seems like he's with his lady friend, but then she has a child and he just abandons her and instead marries like a noble lady. And then there's war, people hate him. His son uh, dies of grievous wounds. He gets older, his castle's under siege. Uh, everyone abandons him and then he finally takes off the sash in his vision and his head just falls off and then in the real world we see he's still still kneeling there and he's like wait I gotta do something he takes off the sash and then the green knight is like uh, uh, my my good knight 
and it's interesting here because he kind of touches Gawain in kind of the same fatherly way we actually see Arthur do earlier, which kind of parallels the Green Knight to Arthur now. When right. he's seemingly been an agent of Morgan, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. And then he's like, draws his uh, thumb across his throat, throat and he's like, off with your head. But he says it in this kind of joking manner, which kind of leads to this ambiguity. But yeah, I would say this is his kind of ultimate pass. Even if it's arrived at through this struggle, which I think is really interesting because, like we said earlier, we see this. Uh, kind of dichotomy set up between like these uh, Western Christian values and this kind of uh, undertrodden pagan, well, slightly undertrodden because the Arthurian stuff is kind of wishy-washy because we have the Christian King Arthur, but we also have Merlin who right. also seems representative of this stuff. Yeah. But uh, uh, ultimately it's the moral values espoused by uh, Arthur and knighthood uh, that kind of come out mm -hmm. and maybe maybe the idea is because the green knight also represents this other side too that this other side should ultimately lead to virtue even if we don't see that occur in the character like Morgan Le Fay right so I don't know yeah I think I mean that's that's one of the best parts about this movie is that it, it, it was made to be interpreted so when you get into this movie and start watching it, just know that, you know, you can interpret it to a certain ex extent through research and this kind of thing. But I think the, the writer director was intending for you to watch this movie and then contemplate it. Oh yeah, definitely. Like we don't know whether the tests were in Gowan's head or actually happened or yeah. what is Morgan's actual intentions. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Whose agent is the Green Knight anyway? Uh, mm -hmm. Or is he his own thing? Yeah. It just got brought in and set in motion. Great stuff. Great stuff. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think we've covered most of it. Oh. I mean, uh, we can mention real quick uh, some of Solomon's uh, stuff. We mentioned this a bit earlier with the pentacles and how they're tying it to Solomon. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's some interesting stuff about yeah Solomon's ring and even even outside of sort of i don't know what you'd call it speculation and whatnot but there there is a like a bible reference in the new testament and essentially it's basically how jesus claims to be the son of david and its connection to uh exorcism and ca casting out spirits do you want to run with that a little bit so solomon in kind of this uh the solomon solomonic mythos is like in control of like angelic and demonic forces due to the wisdom that's granted to him and in some of these uh michael instructs solomon to like or gives solomon this ring that gives him this control over these spiritual forces which is where uh, i think he's getting this whole thing about solomon's seal right mm -hmm. and we see this even carry over into like islamic tradition where uh, Solomon is like the uh, in control of the jinn. We see that in places like Arabian Nights where they open up this uh, bottle and this jinn pops out and he's like, I was imprisoned here by Solomon because I didn't obey him in the building of the temple. And we have later works like the uh, Seal of Solomon, 
which is like a grimoire for controlling demons and stuff like that. Fascinating. It's much later construction, kind of post-Christian, but yeah. yeah. I think we got her. But yeah, this was a this was a much deeper movie than I think we originally mm-hmm. expected it to be. And I found it was like, I would recommend it. If you're not into like that weird psychological stuff, you might not like yeah. it. Ultimately, this was something I enjoyed. I felt it was both a great piece of art and a good movie. 100% agree with you. I was yeah extremely impressed with the production values. Uh, there is just excellent camera work done, and it's camera work done in a way that it, it, the, the angles and how they film it has such an impact on your mood and ambiance of the film that you know, it's it's just a masterpiece. I loved it. Tune in next time to Nerdalogia. These are your curators signing off.